This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, back by popular demand today, a man that needs no introduction, although I'm going to give him one anyways, uh, associate professor at the Sauter School of UBC, Tom Davidoff. That's right. Uh, past guest fan favorite. Uh, right. Tom, I think, has been on this show more than anyone else. Yeah, maybe. maybe I think so. I think Maybe so. Dustin Woodhouse and Tom are going tête-à-tête. Yeah, and you know what? Dustin Woodhouse is coming back on soon, so stay tuned for that because yeah. there's some big, uh, some big news coming in the mortgage world. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's it's so good having Tom back on the show. You know, it's nice to check in every six months with Tom because he's so insightful, and uh, and it's a it's a really interesting moment because his partner Dulcie Anderson ran for city council. We right. are a couple days after that election. She did really well, but just came up a little short. Tom talks about that. And we also broached the subject of the fall market, which is uh, is an exciting and interesting topic with Tom. Well, we used to bring on Tom exclusively for real estate. And now it seems we're talking politics uh, quite a bit. Life but advice. Tom can, he can, he can talk about anything. That's right. Uh, and there's some really great jokes that come out of today's episode as well. Always uh, has us laughing and uh, it's a fantastic episode. Before we get to that, Matt, uh, we're living in Sim City now. Sim City. This was, uh, you know what? I'm Congratulations, not... Ken Sim, first yeah, of all. For, and, I... and ABC, who like basically swept the council, right? And you know what? And Ken's been on the show before. Genuinely, really, really nice guy. Yeah. So, you know, the whole idea of the fascist state uh, on Twitter might be a little bit overstated. Yeah, get off Twitter. Twitter is not get a... It's not a real life. All right. <laughs> far from but, real life. But it is so great. It is so great to see that uh, that Ken was successful and he worked really hard at it. And uh, did a great and, job. And he did a great job as uh, as we discussed today. So congratulations to Ken Sim and all the uh, successful counselors. Yeah, we look forward to having uh, Mayor Sim back on the program at some point. We'll uh, this is uh, super exciting. Matt, we've been giving away a ton of t-shirts as well. Uh, I know we're talking about them, but we've got our Build More Housing shirt, and then we got the Live from Kokomo Studios shirt. Tough to say which one's uh, more popular, but they're both pretty popular. Sending them out. We've had a lot of people asking how they can get a shirt, and and we've been just very generous sending them out just all the time, yeah. mostly through Instagram. Our handle is Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. But Melissa from our team is going to actually run a, a contest on our Instagram. Oh, yeah, so, tell. The, so here's how you do it. And this is all new to me. I'm just reading a text she sent me. Follow us on Instagram at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Share your favorite VREP episode on your story and tag us. Not only will we uh, repost it, but we'll enter you into a, a draw. We're going to be, you know what? It, it, we call it a draw. We're just sending out a bunch of shirts. Expect an email that says, uh, what size are you or, or how can we get a shirt to you? Because here's what we want. We want people from the VREP community wearing these shirts. Rep and VREP. Uh, exactly. And here's, I just got one 
little story here about the V-Rep t-shirts. Sure. I, I have some friends who I saw on the weekend and I brought them shirts as a, okay. as a, as a gift. I think they were going to paint or something. So I brought them a couple of shirts over. I no, but here's the thing. First of all, they really liked what the shirts looked like. Second of all, she works at WeWork. Okay. Okay. And she's worked at WeWork for a very long time when they had a ton of money. And then when they went through the whole, you know, everyone saw the, the show on Apple TV, she's worked it throughout and now they're trying to be profitable. She said, this is the same brand of t-shirt we work used to have when oh, wow. we were blowing through cash. And that's just a testament to the quality. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and to, uh, and to your deep pockets for, 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 no, I said that was, that was your call, but you're a, you're a quality guy. These are, these are top quality t-shirts. You know what my the point. thing is though, is that like a bad quality, the difference in, in the it's price huge. for shirt is, is not that bad, but the quality no, the is huge. Is, is huge. I, and I wouldn't be wearing this shirt if it was a bad quality t-shirt. I wear it all the time. Yeah. You're in every day, I, I, every day. I, this is my, uh, I, I just cycle back. I've got like four or five of them. I just kind of cycle through them. It's like, I'm like inspector gadget. Now I have basically just a closet of what I can wear every day. And it's kind of great. No. And, and it, it looks great too. I got to tell you. On me specifically. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and you know what's amazing too is this, I, I just want to bring this up because he's a good friend of the show and we 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 love this guy. But Jordan McDonald is on the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast this week. This Friday, he's going to be on the show. I, the question is, how does Corey Wright keep on landing the big fish? I have no idea. He's gotten every mayor in the lower mainland in BC. And then now he's got Jordan McDonald, but he's going to be in the studio. Can't wait to give Jordan McDonald a shirt. Don't know what size because the guy's packing on so much muscle every time I see him. He would have been probably a large before, but now he's probably an XL next time he's here. But I, I'm excited to see him. So uh, uh, that's great. But Matt, without further ado, why don't we cut to our conversation with Tom Davidoff? This is a great one as, uh, as we expected. I'm super excited about this talk. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam, with 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds. Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Sauter School of, of Business at UBC. How you doing, Tom? Doing great. You guys? Yeah, not, not so bad. Thanks again uh, for coming back on the show, Tom. We should say past guest, uh, fan favorite. I think everybody's 
who's listening has probably heard you on the show before, but uh, a, fr- a, a friend of the show called it appointment listening when Tom Davidoff's uh, on. <laughs> but maybe for, for anyone who, who hasn't heard you on the show or seen you uh, in various media outlets, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm an economist. I focus on mostly housing markets and uh, aging. I teach at the Sauter School of Business at UBC uh, in the Strategy and Business Economics Group. I uh, dabble in uh, policy, you know, uh, worked for the White House Council of Economic Advisors way back when in 2011, which is getting to be quite a long time ago, you know, uh, worked on what became the speculation tax, been uh, trying to, you know, nudge governments towards uh, allowing more homes, uh, selling density for cash. And, uh, yeah, you know, I just uh, finished a a working paper on uh, how much income tax gets paid by uh, people who own expensive homes in British Columbia. Fantastic. Well, well, one of the things we we wanted to talk about, and we've been kind of communicating over the last couple of weeks, of course, we just had an election with some kind of surprising, I think surprising to to some at least, results. Do, do you have any kind of initial thoughts on the Ken Sim win and the ABC sweep? Yeah. And first, let me give a disclaimer. My wife, Dulcie Anderson, ran with Kennedy Stewart and Forward Together. And I spent the last few months, you know, going bananas on Twitter and uh, trying to round up friends to to see if we could get her through. She didn't quite make it, but I was extremely uh, proud of her performance. She outperformed her ticket, and uh, she was the top vote getter on the ticket. Just missed, uh, you know, getting tenth slot, and uh, I ran a regression. And you know, she did have the advantage of fourth ballot slot, but even correcting for ballot slot in her party, she outperformed by about ten point six percent, or about five thousand votes uh, in another specification. So, super proud of the work we did. But Ken Sim and ABC, they did a fantastic job just at the level of operations, you know, uh, in terms of policy message, all of that, you know, you can go back and forth. But they ran a great ground operation. Obviously, you know, all the yard signs you could see heavily dominated by ABC. They won every election. You know, every single ABC person beat everybody else. No non-ABC candidate beat any ABC candidates. And, you know, you could say, well, that was just a referendum on Kennedy Stewart and, you know, the economy, you know, general condition of the city not being great, which may or may not have been Stewart's fault. But in fact, they they dominated park board and school board as well. So just an incredible uh, campaign run. So my head is truly off to them uh, for, for running just a fa- fantastic ground game. You know, one thing I've been thinking about and, um, you know, spending too much time on Twitter, hearing all the analysis. Uh, but but why do you think the polls were so, had it so wrong? Like, I feel like I I don't know exactly which poll, you know, the day before was like, oh, it's a dead heat, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't buy that one, you know. I mean, so there were three in the last week. So Mario Canseco, I think uh, about maybe a month-ish before, had a poll where it was, you know, Kennedy by maybe two points. And maybe it wasn't Ken Seiko. Somebody had Kennedy up by two points, maybe a month out, which was like a, a bit of a loss. And, you know, there had been some missteps. Remember, there was the, they found, you know, the like who, which who's in charge of calling which developer to ask for how much money, which 
know, just not great, great optics at all. Uh, and, And, you know, so even with that, Kennedy seemed to be doing okay. But then with about a week left in the campaign, there were a couple of really bad polls. You know, one was like 34 Sim, 13 Stewart, 13 Hardwick, which wound up being, you know, even that was an overstatement of how bad it was for Stewart. Uh, but an understatement of how good it was for Sim. And another one, you know, had it pretty bad. And then one, there was an outlier, which was Ken Seiko's the day before the election. Now, you know, one important thing to notice is two thirds of voters, of, of eligible voters, did not vote. So I think it's extremely likely that Kennedy Stewart did better among non voters than he did among voters. And, you know, why would that be? Well, number one, I think people who are inclined to vote, you know, more center right than center left, which was roughly the difference between Sim and Stewart, you know, that tends to be homeowners, more affluent people who are more prone to vote. So you'd have some bias that way. And then the other issue is the ground game. ABC just did a better job of identifying their voters and getting them to the polls than uh, than Forward Together was able to. And so you have to have a really good model for who's going to vote. And if you didn't know how great Ken Sim's ground game was, you know, inferring how likely people are to vote may, may not be so simple. That's a guess. I'm not, I'm not a professional pollster, but if I think about the statistics involved, what ha- I think it's quite likely that, that the eligible voter differentiation was there. Another thing could be, you know, last minute, you know, coalescing around Ken Sim, you know, NPA collapsed. I think Fred Harden got like 3% of the vote despite the, the great NPA brand. Uh, so maybe people sort of right a center towards the end of the election really converged on Ken Sim. But I do think a lot of that was the efforts of the Sim campaign. Tom, we, we had a lot of people on, the, on our show uh, over the last few months talking just about how important housing was for this election. Do you think that was the core issue at the end? No, absolutely not. I, I mean, you know, if you tried to articulate, you know, where is Ken Sim on, on, on the question of, you know, how do we change the city to, you know, improve affordability? I think he, he kept his cards fairly close to his chest. You know, he talked about processing speeds. Well, you know, of course, I mean, nobody's like, oh, you know, what we should really do is bog developers down <laughs> in, in costly delays. You know, that that's my campaign, right? I mean, like, you know, motherhood and apple pie or whatever. Or also, <laughs> so, and, you know, again, that, that's not really a criticism. I mean, you know, your job in an election is to get elected. And so, you know, stirring up controversy on housing in his mind was not good. You know, what did he run on? He ran on law and order and don't make people pay tolls. And people hate paying tolls and people hate disorder. And we talked about this on a podcast maybe two interviews ago. But, you know, I mean, crime statistics don't seem to be worse, but certain types of crime, and I think disturbing crime, are are up. You know, like, you know, crazy guy who's addicted to to meth, menacing people with a machete. That is horrible. No, You know, it's sad that, of course, it's really sad that there's people addicted to meth. But, you know, like, you know, just one machete-wielding, you know, methamphetamine addict is bad. And, you know, clearly there's more than that. And so I think, you know, this perception of uh, disorder was really the thing that drove things. And, you know, I I don't really blame Stewart. I mean, if you look at San Francisco, L.A., I think a lot of big cities, you're seeing similar patterns. You know, there was COVID. We do just have this increase in fentanyl. So it's sort of the way I look at Kennedy Stewart's performance is a little bit like Wall Street. You know, workers on Wall Street get big bonuses when Wall Street's doing well. 
and they get small bonuses when Wall Street's doing badly. Now, no individual, you know, can affect how Wall Street does. But, you know, the firms don't know what your effort was. They know how the firm did. And similarly, I think voters saw, geez, this is a lot of not great stuff going on in the city as a humanitarian issue, but also as a I'm scared issue. And whether or not it was Stewart's fault and whether or not he could have done more, you know, we can get into. But, you know, when the performance is in that arena, it's just tough to get reelected. You know, you mentioned San Francisco and Los Angeles, and I and I think there's, you know, I think I think it's the author of San Francisco, San Francisco, made a splash on Twitter, as as far as I understand, making a point that, you know, there's some sort of move along Cascadia or the West Coast to the right, and uh, and there was a Daily Hive article I think yesterday that came out with I, I'm blanking on the author's name, making the same kind of case. So far, we've been talking about Ken Sim's ground game, which I think is is obviously one of the key reasons that uh, that he did so well. Do you see the the shift rightward along the coast as kind of a are we is this part of a broader movement in your mind, or is it or does it have to do with kind of local dynamics and and Ken Sim's ground game almost entirely? Well, no, I mean, I, I think to the extent there is, I think the Los Angeles mayor's race may be pretty tight where you have a sort of politically centrist, I think, real estate developer Caruso, if, if I have his profile correct, against Karen Bass, a sort of more conventionally left of center uh, Democrat who, you, who you'd think would normally do quite well in L.A. And, you know, I do think, you know, uh, a recession and uh, a growth in homelessness and in, you know, crimes related to addiction, you know, law and order is, that is first order. You know, if if things aren't safe and and there's a perception that things are falling apart, incumbents are going to do badly. And, and particularly, you know, right of center tends to be more of a law and order approach and, you know, Hey, help your fellow person. Let's, let's ameliorate poverty. You know, I think that resonates better when people are feeling like, you know, everything's, you know, act together. And and so we can focus on on other things. But, you know, safety is kind of an absolute priority. And, you know, and and Democrats, you know, in the U.S., I remember, you know, Bill Clinton did just fine on law and order. But, you you know, you'll remember there was the whole, well, it gets complicated and into a lot of demographic stuff that we don't need to get into. But, but you know, there's a long-winded way to say, yeah, I do think this, you know, street disorder and, and, and the homelessness crisis, I think, are probably hurting the people who are incumbent on the West Coast who, who tend to be left of center. You know, one thing that, uh, and this is just thinking out loud here, and we've been talking a lot about, you know, not having any answers, <laughs> but asking a lot of people on the show about, you know, homelessness. And, you know, we, like we were talking last week on the show, we mentioned, you know, North Van Tennis Center now is has RVs huh. parked right around it. The, you know, the beaches on the west side, um, the Home Depot on the east side, like there's a there's a clear growing crisis we're facing that seems to be, you know, kind of at a, at a breaking point. And yet this election, I think, is it. it didn't focus on housing. Like, do you have any thoughts on how we sort this out? Does this just continue to get worse? Or is there any, because I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of like, wh- where do we go from here? Yeah, right. And there's two kinds of homelessness, at least, right? I mean, if you think about homelessness on a graph or whatever, you know, there's sort of two contributors, right? There's, you'd have to think one is, you know, your personal life, you know, you kind of have challenges living indoors with other people for whatever reasons. 
And then number two is you just don't make enough money given housing costs. And I think we've got both types of, of factors contributing to homelessness right now, right? There's the, the fentanyl and meth and all that stuff, I think it is worse than it was for whatever reasons, you know, part of the COVID. But then you also have housing costs are too high. And, uh, you know, so you have, you know, Dulcie in her work as a constituency assistant, you know, there's families living in cars with their pets. You know, these aren't people who, you know, you know, maybe they have some employment and, and personal issues, but mostly they just don't have enough money to have a place. And that, and that's, you know, sleeping in cars or RVs, you know, you do your very best, but that is a terrible situation to be in. Now, what do we do about it? We make housing less expensive and we take money from affluent people and give it to poor people. I mean, I think those are sort of the two choices, but I'm not terribly optimistic that we're going to make housing more affordable. I think, you know, we'll talk about this later in the show, but getting rental housing built or even condo uh, in the next few years is going to be tough with interest rates where they are. So, you know, we do have a lot of rental buildings getting completed. But, you know, again, 400,000 Canadians coming, uh, new Canadians every year, many of whom would love to live in Vancouver. I think it's going to be very hard to see rents do anything, you know, like a good job would be rents don't grow too much relative to incomes. So I'm not I'm not terribly optimistic. My best guess is things continue to, to be worse and worse from an affordability perspective. And it's just a question of how much worse. You know, one thing, like, I guess I'm just thinking about, and this is just, a, you know, talking to people and kind of driving around, apart from the violent, the kind of outlandish violent crime that you mentioned, you know, the machete wielding stuff, like the tents everywhere, and RVs and, you know, all these situations where people, it's terrible, people don't have a place to live, but it does lead to that idea that the city's in chaos, right? Like that, that disorder, it seems like this election in the end was about kind of law and order and, and, and uh, a feeling that this, there's a disorder in the city that, that is a lot worse than it was pre-COVID. I wonder, just thinking out loud about how Ken Sim and the new council can actually create some semblance of order when, as you just mentioned, like housing prices are not going to come down. Uh, housing is probably not going to be built. And, you know, there's just the situation just seems to get worse. Yeah, it's going to be a real challenge. I mean, maybe there's some, you know, there's not, I don't think there's a lot of low hanging fruit. You know, the SROs, I understand that during the summer, the ventilation was so horrendous in those older buildings that people often rationally preferred to be in a tent on the street to, you know, living in a very unpleasant building to begin with in the heat with no air. So, you know, maybe you can do some retrofitting without, you know, total gut rehab to improve that, you know, something like that. But, you know, getting shelters built is tough. I mean, that Arbutus where they built, you know, what, like 100 units about-ish, maybe a couple hundred at 12, uh, what, eighth and Arbutus, that was incredibly controversial. And you had to do it on city land, which isn't all that, that easy to come by. So it's a real challenge getting enough homes built to house everybody who needs to be housed. And, you know, I do think there's some, uh, if you will, endogeneity to the number of people living without homes in Vancouver. I mean, it has to be true that if Vancouver just does a great job and says, hey, if you're a person living in a tent, we're going to put you in decent living circumstances. That's a great thing to do. And I think it might bring more people to Vancouver. I, I don't know how how much mobility there is in response to, to being humanitarian. And that's a good thing. That just means more people who live on the streets somewhere else find a decent place in Vancouver. But I think it may make it very challenging 
uh, you know, have any sort of idea that you're going to eliminate street homelessness in Vancouver because, you know, there may be a response in, in, in how many people who are street homeless live in Vancouver if we're a great place, a relative, not great place, but a relatively better place to be street homeless. I, I, I don't know if that, there's a response there, but it's a possibility. Tom, in thinking about uh, the election, what does it what does it mean for the future of the NDP? Well, that's a really good question. You know, at the provincial level, and 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 I will say, I'm you know, my wife works for David Eby, and, and David and I worked on the speculation tax, so I have some pro David Eby bias that I should acknowledge. But you know, we have this race now between David and uh, Anjali, you know, the environmentalist whose last name I'm, I'm not going to get right at the moment. Uh, and she and, and she ran a very uh, effective effort to get people registered. And I mean, boy, if, if the NDP runs on like, you know, we're, uh, yeah, I mean, and I, and I am extremely environmentalist myself, but, you know, you know, David has experience. He, he's he's made you know quite a bit of progress on both the supply and demand side on the housing file. I think he's a very credible candidate. If, if the NDP runs on an, uh, on a basically extreme left platform. I think that is going to be very, that, that's a tough environment. I mean, ABC, right? I mean, behind ABC, you had Kevin Falcon's campaign manager, Kevin Falcon being the head of the BC liberals or whatever they'll be re- rebranded as, and, you know, Chip Wilson's Pacific Prosperity Network. And that that team just crushed it in, you know, among the more progressive electorates in, in the province. So if you're the NDP and you've got a fractious leadership race, and you have just discovered that your opponents ran the greatest ground game in history on an issue that's probably not, go, you know, centered on an issue that's not going away. You know, I, I don't, I don't think you're like, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever, you know, cruising and chilling or whatever. Is it? Are you? And I, I'm guessing you're surprised by, but uh, are you surprised by how? EB hasn't been able to lock this up. Like I sort of thought, and I'm blanking on her name as well, but some of her ideas are, yeah, are pretty, pretty extreme. And, and I was thinking this was like a kind of a mosquito on an elephant type situation, but it feels like, you know, she's sticking around. Yeah. So here's what happened as I understand it. Now, first of all, I challenge that what she's saying on the environment is necessarily extreme. I mean, you know, I'm looking out the window (laughs) at smoke, you know, in October, that's extreme, right? <laughs> you know, like saving zillion-year-old trees that are a treasure from God. You know, at the expense of like a few hundred logging jobs, right? You know, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I and, you know what, and maybe just to <laughs> clarify, in, in terms of extreme, I mean, kind of po- maybe politically viable in the current political climate. Absolutely, yeah. no, 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 absolutely right. I mean, I, I think if, if, if the NDP winds up not with the experienced guy who's done a lot on housing, but with the person who, who, you know what I mean? And it's so easy to be perfect when you don't have to have a record. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. for unicorns and uh, free parking. Well, great. You know, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't ever, I haven't ever, I haven't ever governed. It. So oh, why is it happening? Well, anyway, so, you know, there's this dogwood group, which is a pro-environmental group, and they just encouraged uh, their their whole list. So they're a nonprofit, and they really pushed their list, you know, which I'm on because I'm environmentalist. You know, I don't know what I did. I signed some petition for something environmentalist at some point that they were on. So I get a lot of email from them saying, you know, you should be registering with the NDP to support Anjali. And I didn't get any emails from anybody saying, hey, Tom, you know, we know you're a pal of David Eby. Make sure you're, you know, an NDP member so you're eligible to vote. So I think there was an element of a tortoise and a hare thing where, you know, 
it looked like a coronation for David Eby, where every single member of the, of the caucus was like, yep, we're for him. None of us are running. And so I don't think he was in a rush to sign up members. He just didn't see, perhaps, or his team didn't see this rush to register NDP memberships from Anjali. And now, you know, maybe there was some impropriety. I don't want to weigh in on it. Again, I, I have, I'm, I'm potentially guilty of motivated reasoning because I, I do have a preference for, for Eby. But there is some controversy over whether that not-for-profit and, you know, should have been getting involved with the Green Party and converting people to NDP and sort of saying, like, you know, go back to Green after you vote, register NDP for now, quit your Green status so that you can vote Anjali over David. You know, so they, they may be able to uh, invalidate some of those and, and maybe on procedural grounds win. But if they're not able to invalidate those memberships, it's going to be tough because I think you know, who, who pays dues to be a member of a political party? That's got to be a very small number of people. So if Anjali has more, you know, base members than David, you know, winning uh, a membership vote, it, it may be a challenge for David, despite his very strong support among people who are, you know, if he had a vote today among people either province-wide or province-wide who generally think of themselves as NDT, I think David would win, you know, like 75-25 yeah. or 90-10 or something. But if you do it among people who signed up for memberships in the last few months, which is who's eligible under the rules, that's potentially a different issue. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Kind of insane to think that the provincial NDP may be imploding this way. That's uh, I haven't been following actually well, all that closely, yeah, but I it mean, actually sounds more dangerous than it than I was assuming it was. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that means she becomes premier because I think you need the, the supportive caucus to be premier. So maybe you have premier Eb and party leader Anjali, and 
you know, uh, hopefully there, 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 this sorts itself out from a, a, a David Eby uh, NDP perspective. But from a D.C. liberal's perspective, I mean, you know, how psyched do you have to be? You just crushed it in the election and you've got, you know, something that appears like disarray uh, on the other side. Maybe uh, shifting gears a little bit here, uh, moving more to the market. Can we talk about what's driving Vancouver real estate right now? And is it is it really uh, just the interest rates at this moment? So you tell me where we're at. I, I look at, you know, looked at the uh, RE real estate board of greater Vancouver, REBGV stats. And, you know, it looks like they see prices down, you know, 10 percentish to 15 percentish across markets from the peak. Now that's a bit stale and, you know, what selling is different from what's on the market. So maybe it's a bit more than that. Uh, just for starters, does that, does that sound about right to you guys? So, you know, $2.3 million homes now, 2 million if it sells. Yeah, yeah, I think that's generally speaking, and obviously across the lower mainland, but um, mm-hmm. with with certain areas or sub markets really outperforming, I would say. But yeah, fair. yeah. So you know, we haven't seen a collapse. I mean, you know, it, it, we we discussed it the last time, and I think I got the conditional forecast right. I said, you know, I I, I expected things to be fine, but I said, you know, the, the risk factor is interest rates. Well, that risk factor, interest rates. My goodness, you know. A year and a half ago or so, we're at one and a half percent nominal interest rates, and now we're you know five and a half on a five-year mortgage. I mean, that's a tremendous difference in the cost of ownership, like just a ginormous difference. You know, way more than a fifteen or twenty percent drop in, in really the sort of fundamental value of homes. So, you know, why are things okay? I mean, I think it's because there've been so many sideline buyers that the market is, you know, people aren't putting up homes for sale, of course, because if you didn't want to sell your home 15% ago, why do you want to sell it today? So very few listings. And I do think there's an army of frustrated buyers who, you know, understandably are reluctant to buy given rates today, but maybe see a bit of opportunity and breathing room and are still alive. So that, I guess what's what's feeding the market, I would say, is, is that army probably mostly of, um, you know, historically frustrated buyers. I'd be very surprised if there's a lot of investors out there because, I mean, making an investment property work, given where rents and interest rates are, I think would be very hard. Do you think there's a strategy, though, for, for investors right now of, of weathering the storm over the next two years and then potentially with a, with a better price point and then potentially refinancing when, when rates a lot of people are arguing go back down. Uh, so you're saying buy today at a discounted rate or discounted price? Sorry. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I think I'd wait a bit. I mean, the thing is, where interest rates are going, which I think will drive the market a lot, right? I mean, you have to think if rates stay where they are for another year or so, it's going to be a tough year in terms of pricing. So that argues from an investor perspective, you know, you'd want to be extremely picky today and really try to bottom feed, find motivated sellers or whatever. Uh, But yeah, you know, I mean, when the market is suffering, of course, you want to buy low and sell high. You know, the the question is, can you tough it out during a high interest rate period where, where, you know, you can't have much leverage uh, if you're going to have positive cash flow? You know, so yeah, I, I I think you will see opportunistic buyers, but but they've got to have a lot of liquidity and, uh, you know, a willingness to to eat eat, eat a little bit of crow if, if prices come down after their purchase. You know, the big unknown. There's a lot of big unknowns, but one of them, of course, is the Ukraine situation, which you know is primarily a humanitarian catastrophe. But you know, I think a theater of inflation and general unhappiness and, and high interest rates. So, 
you know, that is extremely hard to read. I mean, Putin seems to have an unlimited supply of evil inside him. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the ground situation seems to be quite poor. And, you know, how long can you grab adult men off the street and make them suffer and get shot at and rape people in Ukraine, you know, before they start shooting their commanders? I think you know, that's not easy to know. Well, this is, it's interesting, right? Because you're kind of, I think you're answering the, the question I was thinking of, but, you know, we're post-pandemic war in Ukraine, inflation seemingly very hard to get control of. Is there a moment right now in the past that, does this remind you of any in your kind of economic history? Like, okay, this kind of resembles X period? Because I think it, I'm just thinking of it from Adam's, you know, investor question of do we get a handle on inflation do rates come back down is there a moment where you know i, I know everybody talks about volcker but the, yeah. that you're thinking of yeah you know stagflation in the 70s maybe except for we have a tighter labor market you know so there was the high inflation generated by high oil costs in the 70s which may have played out differently in canada you know i think about it the u.s where we're oil consumers you know maybe canada weathers it a bit better because, you know, at least in Alberta, there, there's production. But, you know, we've got, we still have a tight labor market. We, ha we haven't hit recession yet, but we could, right? I mean, you know, if, it, if this drags out and, and, and central banks have to continue raising rates, I mean, I think uh, Tiff Macklem just said, you know, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> too bad, so sad. We're going to crush inflation. And if it means a recession, it means a recession. And I think that's the message central banks probably have to be sending around the world. So, you know, if we get into recession, then you're in stagflation. You've got high interest rates and a lousy job market, and that's really terrible, of course, for asset values, you know, stock market, but also housing prices. But, but again, we're not there yet. So, you know, other than that, no, you know, a high inflation, decent labor market environment, I, I, I'm struggling to, to think of it in, in, in my U.S. history, at least. Tom, in thinking about inventory, so I, I love that, uh, the comment about you know, if people weren't going to sell 15% ago, why would they sell now? Are we going to just continue on in a low inventory environment, do you think? Uh, that's my best guess. Yes, right? I mean, it can't go on forever because people die and get divorced and change jobs. So, you know, you can't hold out forever not selling. But, you know, flippers, you know, you know, so suppose you bought a place and your, your idea was, well, I'll rent it out if I have to. But if prices rise, I'll sell it people who trade up, you know, I think that type of seller, you're probably, or trade down, you know, those, those types of sellers, I think you're going to see less of. So I, I, you know, I think we can certainly go a couple of years with, with low inventory if, if need be, you know, eventually it picks up. So maybe, maybe we're close to a bottom of the fewest fraction of, 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 of owners wanting to sell roughly now. But I, I think it could be many months before that picks up, and, and that does put a bit of a floor on how bad of a crash we have. You know, it's interesting because I'm just thinking, and it's all. Well, let, let me let me take a step back, though. Yeah. I mean, one issue is where where you know when I think about the U.S., which you know I tend to think of in terms of crisis because I lived through the the to mid 2000 cycle in the U.S. But but you know, uh, one issue with Canada is everybody has to renew their mortgage. You know, one sixtieth of, of Canadian mortgages roll over every month, and so eventually you get people who you know bought at reasonably high prices and you know at much lower interest rates. And so 
you know, maybe start to get unstuck as people who, you know, were making cash flow as investors at 2% mortgages graduate into 5.5% mortgage loans. You know, uh, then, you know, you start to reach into your pocket for payments. That's unattractive. Maybe you sell the property, especially if it hasn't fallen too far. So, you know, let me dial back what I just said about uh, about how long people can hold out because you do have the renewal into uncomfortably high payments for a lot of people. Maybe just thinking back to our conversations, Tom, and, and we've obviously talked week in, week out with everyone, and we might have kind of talked about this a little bit last time you were on the show, but thinking back to last year, like at this time last year, we weren't talking about inflation. I just wonder, like, how how did the, let's say the economics community writ large collectively miss this? Because right now, looking back, it seems so obvious to everybody right like and now it's all oh, bank of the bank of canada all the central banks what a bunch of morons they acted too slowly but i recall very specifically this moment last year and no one was talking about inflation or very few people like how sure. how did how did we get it so wrong and i don't put myself in well, the economics community yeah so i mean i you know i i don't forecast inflation you know i was looking at bond yields and the bond markets didn't say inflation you know i mean you know, the, the yield curve didn't say, oh, people are expecting next year inflation to pick up a lot. There were economists who've been warning about this. You know, we had a tight labor market, rising wages coming out of COVID. You know, one thing I will say, is, two things, I guess. One is inflation has a lot to do with expectations. And so, you know, you can sort of shift quickly from a, from a situation where it's like, you know, everybody else thinks inflation's low, so it's going to stay low to, oh, you know, people think inflation's going to be high. I'd better prepare and, you know raise my prices in anticipation of costs or charge charging more, whatever, you know, you can get, you can get um, self-perpetuation. So we might've sort of shifted equilibria. But the other point is, you know, facts on the ground changed, you know, China had a sort of shutdown of production, I believe due to, uh, you know, the further COVID shutdowns and, and, you know, we're not necessarily out of the woods with COVID uh, with the variants and all that. So there was a a China production issue that I I think raised costs. Uh, You did have, I think a bunch of industries where inventories just just got tight all of a sudden. And then, uh, again, you had Ukraine, which is burning a lot of oil and gas and and shutting off gas supplies into Europe. And, you know, uh, I'm guessing that's affecting production decisions, right? Because at some, you know, the winter is going to be a horror show for energy costs in Europe. So, you know, I I think you have a combination of, uh, you know, tight supplies in a lot of markets and low inventories just feeding inflation like we saw in real estate but but other commodities to Russia three China for maybe self perpetuation of just different equilibria and so you know it's not total I mean obviously the China and especially the Russia Ukraine situation you know, I mean this is a pretty lousy outcome that one year ago it had already had it started where are we we're not talking no, no it hadn't started no, it hadn't March. started you know and, and you know and even in February some people are like well he's not really going to do it so you know, I think, you know, a bunch of bad breaks for, for those of us who are more copacetic, but, but we, we are where we are today, which is certainly a, a higher inflation world. Tom, in thinking about the Canadian economy and, and Canadian housing market right now, just generally, are you concerned? Uh, like that we'll have a rash of defaults and foreclosures because <laughs> people can't make payments and they decide their home is worth less than they owe. Yeah, I'm worried about that. I mean, it's not sort of my central forecast. I don't think that's the likeliest outcome. 
But but you know, suppose the economy, suppose we're we're in a recession and the central banks just can't get a hold of inflation and, and rates are like you know mortgage rates are six or seven percent and people are losing their jobs. You know, maybe that starts to impact rents. So instead of rents rising, that they flatten or fall. Yeah, I mean that that could absolutely happen. I think the more likely case is there's not a giant wave of defaults or foreclosures, but nobody's building anything. And uh, there's inflation and, and, you know, wages are going up for some people, but not everybody and rents get worse and worse. So, you know, this the scenario where prices stabilize, construction kicks in again and, and housing costs stay manageable, you know, that that that's sort of what we'd like the best. But that seems like not a particularly likely outcome to me right now. So sorry, just to be clear, the the most. And I know we always ask for forecasts, but specifically in relation to what you were just saying, Tom, the most likely scenario in your mind is, can you just repeat that? Yeah, well, I mean, I I think probably, you know, continued price declines until we get out of inflation. And I don't know how long that'll be, but, you know, not a giant catastrophe is probably most likely and uh, just slow construction. And, and, you know, therefore rents continue to rise as people can't buy and more and more people are competing for the same rental units. I, I think that's, you know, so higher rents, somewhat lower prices, you know, pretty bad situation for the next year or so until until we're out of the inflation weeds. That's probably the likeliest. But, you know, it's fun to think about, the not fun, but interesting to think about the nightmare scenario, which is central banks just can't get inflation uh, under control without giant rate hikes. You get unemployment and high inflation, high mortgage rates, falling prices, and people start to go bad on mortgage debts. You know, like a place like Toronto, all those condo investors, I mean, you know, there's got to be a lot of people who had really dicey financing situations to begin with that that could be looking at mortgage costs growing way faster than rents. And and you could see a lot of them uh, giving units back to the bank and in terms of just cycles and and length of these kind of periods are it sounds like you're kind of thinking 2023's a pretty a uh, year of of nothing's improving or at least nothing's no, improving no, I want to no I want to no, be pretty careful about that I mean you know tomorrow uh, some general could whack out Putin call off the invasion the winter isn't so bad in Europe you know I mean that, that that's a scenario I think, you know, when the end of Ukraine is, when when production picks up out of any COVID problems we're having, you know, sometimes there seems like there's some good commodity news. I think I've seen gas prices falling at, at some point, maybe they're back up. So I don't know when this inflation's going to end. I'm really reluctant to write off 2023. You know, we could be back at 3%, you know, five-year rate uh, by by next summer. I, I just, I don't know. I mean, we could also be at seven and a half. I, I really, I'm very reluctant to say that I know the answer to that. So it, maybe as a final question for you here, Tom, is this the m- most difficult time in your career to forecast the future? Or is this just... Well, I think I've... I've been consistently wrong, right? <laughs> I mean, Vancouver's tough. You know, I, I'm, I, I get the forecast wrong every year. I'm probably going to be closest to right this year because I'm being such a wuss about uh, hedging. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you, you t- Vancouver's market, you know, 400,000 Canadians move new Canadians every year, a lot of whom want to live in Vancouver in a difficult supply environment. You know, prices can grow 10% a year. They can be more modest at inflation. 
and of course, you're always subject to, you know, Jesus, valuation's crazy and, and, and things turn in the wrong direction or you overbuild condos. So I think this market's just, there's just always a tremendous amount of uncertainty, you know, a general positive trend, of course, in rents and, you know, prices as well. But, you know, the other side is we've had this just insane interest rate environment, you know, like this is more normal, you know, mm-hmm. five and a half for a, 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 a five year fixed in Canada where we have three and a half. Three and a half is not a particularly high mortgage uh, treasury yield for five or 10 years. For years, we were just way under that, you know, negative real interest rates. And and that's just a crazy pricing environment. And we've always been vulnerable to a reversion to more normal real interest rates, which is where we're heading today. So, you know, I, I don't know that we'll go back to the total bananas, negative real interest rates, which makes housing worth almost infinity dollars situation. Uh, that we've been in for the last 10 or 20 years. And I just don't know when we go back to that. Um, we, we've got this segment called the five wire, five lighthearted questions to end the show. Can you stick around yeah. for that? Absolutely. The five wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. One book that you'd recommend for our listeners. And I feel like your last book recommendation about World War, no, it was about Stalin. Was that I st- yeah, Bloodland. Yeah, Bloodland. I, you know what? I started reading it and I had to stop. That's Just, a tough one. Oh. That, is, that is not a fun book, huh? No, no. That was uh, a... All right. Well, let me give a better Ukraine book. I'm part of a uh, a book club and, well, I haven't been lately, but we read Gray Bees, which is a very nice book. You know, it's not totally lighthearted, but it's about a, a guy who's a beekeeper in the sort of gray zone of Ukraine before the current invasion, but after the Crimea stuff. So that was a nice book, Gray Bees. Fantastic. All right. A little, uh, yeah, that sounds a little, little easier to get through. Question two, is there something out there that it gives you hope right now? Is there a sign of optimism that you see? Hmm. Optimism. Uh, you know, the kids are great. You know, I really love my undergrads. They're hardworking. You know, they're so progressive, you know, uh, everybody's so respectful of everybody, despite, you know, any differences. I mean, when I think about the words I used to have for any group that was different from my own group and what people would casually throw around in terms of expressions when I was in my early 20s versus, you know, the respect for people who are so different on so many dimensions that that young people today have. I, I think, you know, people talk about woke and all that. You know, the other thing is just people are so respectful of other people and how, how they want to be uh, for the most part. And, and I think that's just great. You know what? That's actually an interesting point. I was thinking about that the other day. I have a my daughter's turning 11. And yeah, it's, it's her world is so I was thinking just that she can't even conceptualize <laughs> the world I grew up in in terms of, yeah, just how we dealt with difference. It's like are almost inconceivable, I think, amongst her generation. So interesting point. Third question, Tom, is what is is something that you're binge watching right now or a favorite movie recommendation? Gosh, 
give me a second here. What did we watch on Netflix? You know, the election really took all of our attention away. But, you know, we're big fans. And, and maybe we said, I said this the last time, We Swedish and Scandinavian Netflix is really quite good. So I'll give that broad overview. You know, there's Borgen, Occupied, and Bonus Family we watched not too long ago. That is just a great Swedish TV series. If you want to feel like, hey, you know, my life is screwed up, but like, so is everybody else's. Bonus Emily was so great in that way. And is that, that's on Netflix? Yeah, it's a Swedish uh, series that went on for a few years. Really, just, I, I think, you know, great character development. You know, they really, really, they really, you know, it, it, it was an honest effort, you know, really good, great ensemble acting. Just, just fantastic. Oh. Good one. Tom, I remember last time asking you about uh, a favorite song, and I think you sent everyone down some rabbit holes on YouTube. Instead yeah. of that question, you're at a karaoke bar and someone throws a mic mm -hmm. in your hand. What what song are you singing? Ooh. Well, you know, um, not sure I'd, I'd sing it very well, but you know, in preparation for the show, I was like, you know, what do I want? I was watching uh, Fat Joe and Ashanti, What's Love? You know, maybe the explicit version. Big fan. <laughs> Man, no, that is not, that was not where I thought you were going. <laughs> but that shows the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the the YouTube songs were last time, but it was like yeah, late seventies, wasn't it? Uh, the Fat Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and anything pre 1990, I'm I'm okay with. Right. <laughs> but even though, no, I guess that's mid nineties. That's about ninety six. That's about ninety six. <laughs> and or, uh, early yuppie years. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, uh, something you've recently purchased for under fifteen hundred dollars that's uh, that's had an impact on your life. <sighs> I, I really never buy anything these days. You know, my wife got me a pair of orange Allbirds. You know, they're they're pretty jazzy. I get I get some comments comments on them. Fantastic. Well, well, well. Maybe we'll uh, we'll leave it there, Tom. Thanks again for your time. As always, it's it's incredible that you keep coming coming back on, uh, and hopefully you'll continue to do so. But uh, but for those uh, out there that are wanting to follow along, I guess on Twitter and learn more about what you're doing, how can they find out more about uh, about what you're doing? Yeah, well, coming soon, uh, a couple of new papers. Uh, the, the one on tax, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm really quite interested in. So that's at blogs.ubc.ca/davidoff, and I'm at Tom Davidoff on Twitter. Excellent. Well, thanks so much again for your time today, Tom. My pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. There you have it, folks. Our discussion with associate professor at the Sauter School of Business, Tom Davidoff. Always enjoy having Tom on the program. And uh, man, he's uh, this is like he's part of the ten timer club. He always comes on. He's always got great insight and just a just a great movie re uh, music recommendation. I should say. <laughs> what eclectic taste! You know, he's kind of a Renaissance man. We sort of said at the beginning, like you can kind of ask him anything, right? And he can speak really, really intelligently and insightfully about it. But uh, man, what does his that music joke. catalog look like? Because last time I don't remember, but it was something, something. It was it very was obs obscure. It, it very felt obscure. obscure. Yeah, it was like check out the saxophone part in this <laughs> YouTube video from 1972 or whatever. It was yeah. it was very obscure. Yeah, but Fat Joe, 
not obscure, but a great uh, a great throwback. Right. No, no, a great, great song and a bit of a surprise. But there was somebody so many... out there will be listening to Fat Joe on their drive home from work today. Yeah. And, and his, his name is Adam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the there was so many takeaways there. Really kind of interesting post-election analysis. Right. Um, but just all around, I just love talking to Tom about the city and the real estate market and uh and what's going to happen because uh, he's just, he's an insightful guy. So great Absolutely. to have him on. Absolutely, Matt. And uh, last but not least, we'll mention this again because uh, Melissa's text just came in again. Just a follow-up. Did you guys say this on the intro and the outro? We are doing a contest. We're giving away some V-Rep t-shirts. We've got the Build More Housing shirt and the Live from Kokomo Studios. So how to participate. You can follow us on Instagram at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. You can share your favorite V-Rep episode on your story. And all you have to do is tag us and we're going to be giving away some shirts. So do that. Follow us on Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And you should follow us anyways. We're posting, uh, you know, regularly. Quite regularly. Absolutely. Follow us on Instagram. And uh, you can also head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live, including our back catalog, summaries of those episodes, the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We also have, of course, our weekly mailer, the V-Rep Livewire, where you can sign up for that as well. That has stats, VIP pre-sale, residential and commercial deal of the month. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. Absolutely, for sure. And Adam, of course, we also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com slash PCS. Sign up for your own free account. There's no better time to be using PCS than right now because there's some real discrepancy in list price versus sale price. If you're wondering what the market is doing, this is the information that you need. Absolutely. And one more thing about the five wire, the, the stats that are going out are phenomenal too. So if you're looking for sales ratios. Well, submarkets, it's so important. You know, what's so going important. on in kits is not what's happening in, in South Burnaby. That's and if for sure. you think your your property is down, it might not be down. Not, not based on what the general stats are talking about for the area. And like we said, there's low inventory. So if you are looking to sell, there might be uh, some opportunities for you, even though it seems like a lot of doom and gloom. Absolutely. And if you want to talk about that or anything else, give me a shout at 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And we also got that Kokomo line info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We'll have a great week, guys. And we're back next week with some more phenomenal content. We've got so many episodes here. We're stacking them right now. And it's so exciting because honestly, I'm learning a lot. I hope the V-Rep community is too. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.